competitive analysis uh, and uh, uh, and um, strategic alternatives. Um, and I'm the author of The Future of Digital Health. Uh, so uh, you can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our show today is on the emergence of solutions aggregators um, in the space of digital health benefits, solution aggregators are emerging as, as purchasers seek an enterprise buy. Um, our guest today is Mike Pace. Mike is the founder and CEO of Palm Health Co., a health tech and biopharma commercialization advisory and consulting firm, and the former head of market access, health economics, and outcomes research at Pair Therapeutics. And you can follow him on LinkedIn. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. You can subscribe on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. First of all, here's the format of the show. It, it will last about 90 minutes uh, and Mike and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture and some other topics. And then in the second half, we'll discuss our topic of the day which is the emergence of uh, digital health solutions aggregators. Um, and just a second, we, we, we may have some technical difficulties um, in a moment. Oh, good, we have, we have Mike back, that, that, that's great. Um, so, uh, uh, after that, and throughout that time, we'll be taking calls from our audience or questions in the, in the chat. In order for you to do more than just watch, um, you need to register for an account on call-in. Um, visit callin.com or use the call-in uh, social podcasting app for your smartphone. Create an account, log in, then you can be part of the Q&A. Um, so uh, with that, uh, Mike, can you please introduce yourself? Certainly, Steve. Thank you. And uh, welcome uh, to all listeners. Um, yes, I'm Mike Pace, and uh, I'm the founder and CEO of uh, a boutique independent advisory consultancy uh, called Palm Health Co. Um, and essentially, the nature of my work is fractional market access, value, and commercialization, and strategy, executive advisory, and, and consultancy in the digital health, digital therapeutics, uh, life sciences, biopharma uh, space. And and I consider myself a, a bit of a healthcare monetization uh, coach. Um, I've been 30 years in biopharma, uh, a part of five digital health startups in three different decades, um, and led the value strategy consultancy practice at, at Icon, one of the leading CROs uh, in America. Um, so we're, we're rolling up um, kind of all of that experiences, uh, the trials and tribulations, the failures, the the success points um, along those uh, milestones and, and trying to provide some advice and counsel to uh, entrepreneurs, uh, founders, CEOs, and, and their executive teams and um, how to thrive uh, in bringing digital health solutions and life science solutions to, uh, to patients. That's a great overview, thank you. And you put out a map a year ago, a market map a year ago, and it got a whole lot of attention. And now you've teased the public with an updated version of that market map uh, more recently and got an enormous amount of engagement on LinkedIn. And for our audience, um, maybe you've probably seen this map, um, but uh, 
you can, I put the link to the LinkedIn page that has the map. You can go there and that in the second half of our show, it could be helpful for you to have that map in, in front of you, both to follow the conversation and to ask questions and that sort of thing. Um, so I'll move on to our first uh, topic, which is macro news. So in the good old days, uh, uh, the innovation economy didn't have to worry about macro because it was it was so good all the time. Uh, unfortunately, today, there's lots of bad macro news and that affects us. And so I wanted to chat about uh, what's been going on the last week or two with macro news. So um, the first is, you know, major market indices are near record highs. I think I saw, you know, on um, CNBC today that the... Um, S&P 500 is, is approaching or is at its record high uh, right now. The Nasdaq, interestingly, is at 15,800, um, and I've been and uh, it was at 10,000 13 months ago, and people were not at all certain it would it would rise, and so but it's up 58 percent in the last 13 months. Uh, if only you'd invested just in the Nasdaq 13 months ago, everyone would believe you're a genius a stock picker today. Um, uh, and uh, also the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out. What, what the markets are talking about today is that the BLS published its job report yesterday and it, it, it totally beat expectations. It was hotter than anyone thought with 353,000 new jobs added. Now, there's been this big debate for over a year that we ought to be at the end of an expansionary cycle and the beginning of a contractionary cycle, the beginning of a recession. Let's hope it's a soft landing. But with jobs numbers like this, it, it, it confuses, it muddies the picture. Maybe we're not going into a recession with job numbers like that. Um, so, uh, Mike, do you follow the market? Uh, and what, what do you, uh, you know, what are any, any data points that you want to call out or any reaction to, to this news from the market? But overall, I'd say it's positive. It, it feels like it. Uh, certainly, you're the expert here, but it certainly feels like it is a, um, a Main Street investor uh, and someone that uh, helps founders uh, to try to, uh, uh, like you, uh, to be successful um, in uh, venture and, and leading to public markets. Uh, it's uh, certainly the inflation re reports, or at least the the headwinds, don't look to be as strong um, along the way. And I think that that feels somewhat positive. But gosh, the economy is pretty resilient uh, as well. Um, jobs are just out out of sight. So, like you said, it's um, it's interesting how resilient the economy is and just how much of a pendulum we seem to swing from one side to the other. Yeah, and, and on this show, we tend to look at things from the perspective of, of what I call the innovation economy. So the innovation economy is young companies. They're, they're often very innovative and earnings negative and the investors who invest in them. And that's usually venture capitalists are the investors who invest in them. And so uh, the uh, this this innovation economy, it wants low interest rates um, uh, so that it can raise capital uh, and that capital wants to invest in growth companies instead of income companies. Um, it wants low inflation. Inflation is terrible. It's a terrible form of instability for, for young companies. It makes it hard to plan for the future. Um, and uh, it wants a growing economy uh, because it wants the, we, we usually sell into the big budgets of healthcare and those big budgets feel poor during a recession and cut back on their spend on tech. And they feel rich and spendy during good times. And so and so we really want uh, certain kinds of economic conditions and uh, and we can sense what what life's going to be like for us in the next year or two as we look at, at these indicators. Um, so uh, next I'll mention. So um, uh, I know that a lot of people in the innovation economy really wanted uh, the Fed to cut rates. It, the Fed raised rates to about five and a half points for the risk free rate. 
in a very short period of time, in a two-year time period, that's faster than they've ever raised rates before. Um, and that caused a lot of uncertainty in the innovation economy, uh, and it caused the current funding valley of despair, fundraising valley of despair that we're seeing right now. So people want to see the Fed um, uh, uh, cut rates. And what we've got instead was, if you cycle back six months ago, there was a realistic expectation that the Fed might cut rates in the first quarter of this year right now. Increasingly, it looks like um, the Fed will probably postpone any rate cuts, which would be good news for the innovation economy. Well, the, the rate cuts would be good news. The postponing of rate cuts is not good news. And this is related to a strong jobs report with, without in, uh, uh, concomitant inflation. It means the Fed doesn't have to cut rates and may not cut rates. Um, so that's um, we, we'd like to see rate cuts. The Fed is signaling it may not cut rates until second quarter or third quarter or fourth quarter. Um, also, in a very unusual step, um, so the Fed chairman is supposed to be boring, uh, boring and predictable, but Jerome Powell went off script just the other day and he, ex he just expressed concern at the very high level of debt to GDP that the US has and that debt to GDP percent is going up, meaning that Congress is spending faster than GDP growth. Um, and that this is ultimately unsustainable. We don't know at what level it's unsustainable, but it's unusual for a Fed chairman to sort of lecture Congress in that way. So he's he's clearly concerned. And we know we've seen big spending bills go through Congress quite a lot. There were spending bills to deal, to deal with COVID, spending deals to, for stimulus for the economy, spending bills associated with war, with two wars. Um, and so uh, it's unusual to see the Fed speak out and say, hey, that's too high. So any, any thought or reaction to those? Steve, for me, it sounds pretty, pretty logical and I don't really have anything to add. Um, so, and lastly, we'll look at uh, the IPO window. So in the innovation economy, we really want to see the IPO window open up and it's been closed. It's been closed for, for about two years. Um, tech, tech companies can't IPO. Mainstream manufacturing companies can't IPO. Um, biotech can't IPO. Um, and, uh, 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 but there's hope that we'll, and that we'll see the IPO window open. Um, and we saw, so what that usually means is that is that only a small, if the IPO window is closed, it means only a small number of, of quality companies can IPO and those IPOs are not received with, with ecstasy by Wall Street. Um, and when, when it's open, it means all sorts of companies can IPO and they're well received by Wall Street. So we've seen some attempts to open up the IPO window in uh, September, October, November, and, and those fizzled out. So we, we did not see a successful opening up of the IPO window. And now we're seeing some new attempts. And what we want to see is a quality company in healthcare or tech or biotech IPO and for stock price to go up 15% and stay up. And if that happens, then the companies that are in the wings waiting to come to go out an IPO will come out and try to IPO as well. And if many of them are successful and their stock prices go up, then the IPO does open and anybody who meets minimum standards can go out for an IPO. And there's lots of demand at buy side firms like Fidelity or BlackRock for IPO product. Um, it's just that market conditions aren't great for it and haven't been great for it for two years. So to summarize here, uh, just last week, we saw KKR's BrightSpring, which is a healthcare services company, um, IPO'd. Uh, and unfortunately, its stock is down 
since the IPO. So that was not a great performance in the market. That sends a cooling signal to people who are waiting in the wings to IPO. Um, and then today, a REIT, so this is more of a real estate, it's called American Healthcare REIT. Sounds like healthcare, it's really real estate. Um, it opened and was up 7% today. That's an encouraging sign. And then there's a lot of, uh, of experts are saying that Waystar, which is a healthcare revenue cycle management company, may IPO. Um, but if it sees a, a choppy environment, it may not IPO. So, so I'd love to be able to tell my audience that the IPO window has opened. Uh, that would be great for increasing liquidity at every cycle of the capital chain from, from seed, uh, A, B, C, D, crossover, IPO. The opening of the IPO window opens up all of those, increases liquidity for all of those. But uh, so far, it, it looks choppy so far in early February. So Mike, any, any thoughts on that or on any other sort of macro news you want to bring to our audience? Uh, you know, having having been a part of a company before it decided to go public via SPAC and then having watched uh, that company go bankrupt and having uh, seen 90% of the public SPAC digital health companies likewise lose 95% of their value and not seeing any staying power at all in the public markets in the first 12 months, I think you know, what what we're experiencing is um, a risk aversion to poor performance in the public markets um, and a real premium on readiness to enter the public markets and therefore not just macroeconomic, but um, very, very, very internal decision criteria that are focusing on the key table stakes to deliver, Steve, what you're saying, right? If you if you can't deliver 15 percent above above market price in a sustainable way, um, it's not a recipe for success. Uh, and, and so what used to be a rush towards the opportunity um, is much more so, um, I think, uh, a real uh, reticence to um, move too quick and, 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 and right now to, to de-risk failure from occurring. That wasn't what was happening. And also to, to remind people, we had an incredible boom, including stock market boom and funding boom, in the years 2020 and 2021. Um, and uh, the number of publicly listed digital health software companies that, that went public during that time approximately doubled. So from the beginning of the history of time up through that point, there was a certain number that had IPO'd and then it doubled during that two year period. And uh, there was a lot of market demand for IPOs and SPACs. Um, and, uh, but uh, there've been some studies that those companies that went public during that time they're down roughly like 90%, whereas the overall market uh, took a hit and was down over 30%, but digital health SPACs and other companies that went public at that time were down 90%. The markets come back in certain ways, and those companies have not really come back in certain ways. So this raises, a, there's a specter hanging over the sector, which is that was the kind of investor who would invest in these, were they burned for a long time? Are we going to see, are years going to have to go by um, and and more meritorious companies go out for an IPO in order to win that kind of investor back. And so we can see the IPO window open. And then the next question after that is, is will there be trust in digital health 
unicorns, software company unicorns um, uh, that want, that very much want to go public for the sake of liquidity for their investors. Um, well, great. Well, great. Thank you for that that great overview uh, of macro news. And so now we'll move on to industry reports. So here, if there were reports published in the last two weeks that we thought were worth bringing to our audience, we're going to bring them and mention the key findings. And for our audience, by the way, this would be a great time in the chat to mention any reports you saw, and we, we and we can we can you know speak out on those reports as well. But I didn't see any reports in the last week or two that I think is worth bringing to the audience. Uh, but uh, Mike, did you see any reports? Uh, I did. Only one uh, saw come across the wires yesterday uh, from a you know a smaller group, uh, Arzatin, and it was a a global digital biomarkers uh, report. Um, suggesting a CAGR of 23% uh, moving into 2029 and a pretty decent sized market um, projected, you know, 8.6 billion in 29 and, and mostly dominated by wearables and, and sensors. And I thought, um, I thought this was one of the first reports I thought that really narrowed in on the digital health market um, into uh, not only biomarkers, um, but into wearables and sensors very specifically, because we know that they're really a gateway to much else that's occurring in the broader digital health market space, um, really being fundamental table stakes to support clinical decision support and virtual care and, and other, um, uh, other parts of the digital health market. So I thought that was quite interesting. It's, it's a sizable market. I mean, the, the digital therapeutics market forecasts on average, as I've seen them, eight or 10 of them, 12 of them are like 31 billion in, in 2030. So, still a, a very um, significant um, market in digital therapeutics, but I thought this segment of the market was notable. Um, it was one of the first times that I've seen it um, uh, broken out yesterday. And by the way, how, how roughly, how would you define uh, a digital biomarker? So I, I, I might define it as, so a, a patient goes to see a doctor, doctor takes his temperature with an alcohol thermometer um, that, that's not a digital biomarker temperature, um, but certain because because you can acquire it and doctors traditionally have acquired it using a, an ordinary thermometer. But there's other uh, types of data that can only be acquired with digital devices, and that might be step count, uh, might be, or it could also be um, sleep time in bed because you're wearing a digital device on your wrist and it measures your sleep time in bed. Um, or it could be, I've seen some really interesting stuff having to do with using an iPhone to take pictures of your eye uh, and measure certain things like, like concussion. Now, the doctor could do that personally, or you could do that with older equipment that's not digital. But but now you're letting someone in the field take lots of pictures of their own eye. And that, and that could be a, a very different kind of data and better data than we've had in the past. And it could be enable the patient to take it uh, in the field. So what what is uh, digital biomarkers? What's, what's their significance? Uh, great question. Uh, probably the single greatest significance, honestly, that that I'd suggest is in uh, is in clinical research. Um, and right now, the the major market motion and the real excitement and tremendous progress being made are are in the labs of uh, the biopharmaceutical companies and medical device companies, but more so biopharma companies. Um, there've been um, many, many, many dozens of validated biomarkers now that have been established that. Pharma is rushing pretty strongly into um, that are really, really, really accelerating um, uh, things like time to market, but also cost of doing business. So really trying to build efficiency into clinical research. So that's really exciting. 
Um, but I'm more thinking of it on the commercial end. I'm not a researcher. Uh, I'm not a physician. I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm not a trained scientist in that regard. Um, I think about biomarkers more from the commercial impact of um, measuring effectiveness and, 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 and efficacy in the real world, being able to do that on a real-time basis, setting the stage for um, real value-based care and the opportunity to take risk um, in a digital health sphere because you have the opportunity to know, in fact, uh, what's happening with consumers, with patients at, at any moment in time um, related to those things that can be digitally measured. Um, uh, beyond the examples that you shared too, I mean, I, I look at um, uh, neurology, for instance, is a, is a very fertile ground for neuromuscular disorders, uh, you know, and Parkinson's disease, tremors and dyskinesia, those the movement disorders is, is a great uh, use case for, for digital biomarkers. One of the most well-known uh, ones uh, um, is really in dermatology uh, in, in, with, with nocturnal scratch, right? So, you know, how do you actually measure um, scratching like in the middle of the night, right? And, and that's very much an indicator um, of dermatologic uh, uh, sequelae. So uh, I think those things are really exciting. Again, the primary use case right now is back in the, in the clinical development uh, scenario, but I see that gravitating pretty strongly into the commercial area. Whether or not it becomes monetized as a product itself will all be based on the evidence that gets generated um, and what the go-to-market motion may be and whether or not any type of payer maybe have a willingness to pay, but a willingness to invest in the use of biomarkers and clinical development, um, that's already quite proven. Yeah, thanks. And, and Scott comments um, uh, that think the easy example is of a patient on a um, cardio medication and they're monitoring their heart rate uh, on a 24-hour time frame. Yeah, so that was not possible in the past. Uh, uh, you had it was you were typically done in clinic for for short episodes of measurement, and theoretically you could have a clinical grade device that, that is, is could affordably be in the home and could now measure more kinds of data, more continuous data, longer periods of time, uh, and and just have a totally different picture um, and a better diagnosis, including diagnosing rarer conditions or more serious conditions in someone sooner because they had that better data. Um, uh, so uh, that, that's great. And I'll, I'll comment as well. I think from, a, from a, the, a perspective of the commercialization of innovation, um, uh, digital biomarkers were originally very interesting from the perspective of selling them to, to providers. Uh, and, but the, the trouble was though, under the old fee-for-service model, providers didn't have much of an incentive to do to behave differently or to buy technology or to send patients home with technology that they had bought in, in their lab. Um, and that began to change and pick up with the um, remote patient monitoring codes where in certain conditions for certain kinds of devices, um, there was a business model. And if you did several observations of a patient when they were at home per month, you could get 130 bucks as a, as a provider um, for providing that remote care. Uh, to that patient. Uh, so that, that was before the pandemic, there was experimentation in this field. And it was hard to sell them to pharma for clinic, for speeding up clinical trials, for clinical trial acceleration and decentralization. Then the pan, because pharma was very conservative as a buyer, then the pandemic hit and suddenly pharma said, oh my God, uh, we have to get devices onto patients in their homes so that they, our, our trial sites could be contagion sites. 
and trials are not moving forward. And so we need to adopt new technology so as to be decentralized so that we're not at risk for, for spreading COVID during a COVID pandemic. Um, so you saw a lot of pharma interest for clinical trials in those devices. Um, and now um, you're as payment in the provider sector shifts more towards fee for value, there's, you know, the, the momentum may be shifting back to providers now after a strong burst in, in the pharma sector looking at these devices. Hopefully there's multiple cylinders going, providing demand for innovative companies in these areas. Um, um, so uh, next we'll move on to some, to news and trade journal news. Um, business news and trade journal news. So for our audience, if, if you guys um, have any comments um, uh, or news stories you'd like for us to talk about, um, uh, you know, go ahead uh, and put them in the comments. Um, uh, I like to talk about fundraises here, but in the recent past, it's been kind of depressing. There's more stories about wind downs than there are about fundraises. Um, uh, but uh, I'll mention as my first uh, story, uh, that Apple has launched the Apple Vision Pro for only $3,500. Um, uh, now, Meta Facebook has had their Quest VR headset out for a few years now, and it sells for $250. Um, and Cedar sinai just announced this week the launch of Zaya, a spatial computing, spatial computing, uh, AI-enabled virtual psychotherapy uh, companion that's accessible on the Apple Vision Pro. Um, so very interesting. We saw healthcare adoption of Google Glass and that became Augmetics um, years ago. Uh, and there are there's plausible uses of of the the MetaQuest um, VR headset. So I guess I would ask you, Mike, do you think the Apple Vision Pro at three thousand five hundred dollars is this a healthcare device? Um, uh, and uh, do you think this is going to be Apple has the golden touch when it comes to consumers and consumer behavior. Um, and sometimes a UI breakthrough can be a massively powerful healthcare breakthrough. So do you think this is a healthcare device? Do you think this, there's any legs? Do you think you'll see innovative companies create powerful apps for the Apple headset? Um, I'm sure that uh, innovative companies will create all sorts of uh, compatible uh, technologies that will be utilized in AR VR settings, whether or not they're used with those goggles uh, or not, and whether or not um, uh, payers, uh, uh, whoever uh, is targeted by a, a VR AR uh, developer, um, are, are willing to pay for use of, uh, of that technology um, is will be yet to be seen, and it will be determined by um, and in fact, we'll talk about it later, it may well be determined by third-party arbiters as much as it will be determined by public opinion, consumer adoption, um, advocacy. Um, uh, ultimately, it'll be, it'll be probably determined by evidence and valuation of the benefits of the technology. So we'll see um, if cardboard VR headsets uh, at, at, at a few hundred bucks, um, deliver the same type of outcomes as uh, Apple enabled three thousand uh, dollar headsets. Uh, I think we know where healthcare payers will go. Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so, and we have a comment from Eric in the comments who says Achille now has a valuation of eighteen million and a share price of twenty four cents um, at IPO. 
Its share price was $36 and it had a $450 million valuation. How do investors in the near term move from this marker? Um, yeah, that, 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 that's a really tough question. My, my gut reaction to that is that we're going to need to see, so specifically the part of Achille that has been troubled is the part of Achille that is uh, prescribed by a prescriber for use by a patient under the care of a provider, um, dispensed by a pharmacy, reimbursed by a payer, um, and the drug price, the digital therapeutic price, is roughly equivalent to the price of a molecular therapeutic. Um, and that model, which was the pair model and Achilles model for its, its uh, FDA-cleared product, um, that has stumbled and there is, is no hit product in that market. And so basically that market's waiting. There've been over 70 companies funded in that market um, and uh, that market's kind of waiting for a hit product. And those products have encountered a lot of problems. Mike, you probably would know those problems, but as an outsider looking in, there are problems like usability that causes them to be just harder to use and graded harder than a pill is. It's harder to use a digital therapeutic than it is to use a pill. Um, also, um, getting doctors to prescribe patients to use, also getting reimbursement from payers. And those, we need to kind of solve those. And some people have claimed you need like an act of legislation in Congress to solve those, which is a very high bar. But we're waiting basically for there to be a hit product. Then, then that hit product will have big returns and then investors will be excited again. Now, there's more to life than just that kind of product prescribed by prescribers, uh, you know, used by a patient under the care of a, of a provider, reimbursed by payers, etc. There's also versions that support a provider in the provider's office and extend the provider's labor and expertise and are sold to providers and are, are not necessarily reimbursed. Um, and there's also versions that are sold to employ through employers to employees as well, like Livongo. Um, and that has not been so the strict version of a prescription digital therapeutic is out of favor with investors right now, but those other versions are not out of favor with investors right now. But with the strict version that we're talking about, we basically need to see, we're waiting for there to be some hit products that provide returns to investors that show the way. So um, Mike, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, a bunch. We would need to do another show, uh, Steve, since it was um, life and, and actually continues to be life uh, very much uh, for me. I've worked with uh, many uh, of the prescription digital therapeutics developers in the United States and a bunch of the prescription digital therapeutics developers in Germany and, and the rest of the world. And of course, the markets uh, couldn't be any more binary um, in nature. Um, and, and yes, we in, in the States, uh, I joined uh, Pair Therapeutics uh, in early May of uh, 2019, five years ago, right? So the market has moved um, inches inches and the first coverages and reimbursements that you know we did and our team did back in 2019 and 20 um, there has not been uh, a scaling of those kind of baseline coverage environment um, in any way and lots of reasons for that but fundamentally it's a it's an issue of the marketplace it's a factor of the chicken and the egg of provider adoption and uh, payer reimbursement and all of that really um, uh, uh, sitting around the center, which is all about evidence and advocacy. Um, and in the, in the absence of evidence that supports both provider adoption and payer reimbursement and advocacy of either payers to support coverage or providers to ask payers for coverage, 
um, without there being substantial market momentum um, in those regards, um, we have the market that we have. And uh, uh, yes, so uh, the pivot that Achilles has has made, we'll see. Earnings are are, are due uh, sometime soon. Um, I haven't seen a report of when the earnings call will be. It's it's typically this week or next. Um, so it's actually surprising to me that I haven't seen an announcement. Uh, we also know that there uh, there's a, a delisting scenario that's also um, underway uh, with Achilles. So I, I'm hopeful that we'll we'll see earnings and perhaps we'll see uh, the the pivot to the model that Achilles has made uh, turn out to be um, uh, generating the right type of momentum at this point and showing the way for a different path to market that may in fact not be prescription based and not be uh, FDA authorized uh, initially, and that that may be a stepwise or sequential type of go-to-market approach. And, and the pivot, I believe, is that uh, Achille used to be putting its emphasis on, you know, being prescribed by prescribers, reimbursed by payers, uh, and now it's going down the consumer pathway. And there's a very interesting uh, story in, for Achille about just parents being very concerned about their kids being on ADHD and being active and involved and being willing to spend money on a product that has equivalence to an ADHD drug, but they don't have to drug their kid. Um, and so that, that's always been a great story, but it's a story why parents might be motivated to take action to buy an unreimbursed product. Uh, if, you know, and there's also scenarios where they're being told by an authority figure, such as a school or a doctor, that their kid needs to be under control more. And so, and, 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 and so they're facing uh, an ADHD drug. They don't want their, to force their kid to take it. Uh, and so they're able to um, use this alternate method. So that's going to be a very interesting story. I'll be watching for those uh, earnings results from Achille as well. So Jonas also comments on Eli Lilly being the first pharma to launch B2C GLP-1 under their brand via Digital Health and Fulfillment Partnership. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I want to sort of slap Eli Lilly and say, stay in your lane. You know, there's some entrepreneur out there in Venture Fund who, who, who wanted to do that. And then, and then Lilly, of all people, stepped in there and said, we're doing this. Um, uh, and uh, but, uh, so, um, but that, that, that's very interesting. And I, I wonder if there's some problem here, which is channel conflict, which is how can pharma companies accept that doctors own the patient and pharma does not own the patient. And so how can Lilly go direct to patients? Um, uh, they are, they will be upsetting the doctors who, who ultimately own the patient and decide what drug to give the patient. So I, I think that might be a mistake on the part of, uh, of Lilly to go direct, uh, with, with the two to patients with the GLP one, it certainly is unusual behavior for pharma. So any thoughts on that, uh, Mike? Yeah, it's an interesting one. This is like a, an awesome fireside chat. Uh, I wish we could open it up to everyone <laughs> in the audience because it's it's just classic. Now, first of all, not at all innovative, right? Uh, Eli Lilly doing this. We were talking about doing these things in the 80s. Um, again, we didn't have iPads. We didn't have uh, telehealth and those types of things. But, you know, just kind of the marketing motion here is 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 not novel um, at all. Um, I think that I'd underscore what you're saying is that and, and even our topic that we'll talk about today, I think channel conflict is one of the most um, underappreciated um, opportunities, like avoiding it and also leveraging. It. Um, so leveraging channels and avoiding channel conflict is probably one of the greatest opportunities for scale um, in all markets, much less digital health. 
Um, and so to me, this is this is a natural progression. I'll give you another example. Eli Lilly's number one competitor, the two most valuable pharmaceutical companies in the world now today, um, Novo Nordisk, right, just swallowed up its parent, its foundation, just backward integrated and bought the contract supply manufacturers because they can't produce enough drug to service the market. So these are just natural progressions to me in the side, in the supply chain, upstream, downstream. Um, there is one on the supply side, right? Novo just said, I'm going supply side. Lily said, I'm going, I'm going sales side, right? Um, so I think they're just natural progressions along on supply chain integration. So we've been diving into the q and I'm going to um, compress and speed through the rest of our talk just so that we can get this in by about about 45 minutes past the hour. Uh, so my, my and so that means we're not going to be diving into the chat room in order in order to be able to speed up the news part. Um, so. Um, uh, a big announcement, Ambience Healthcare uh, announced that it raised a $70 million Series B for its AI assistant led by OpenAI and Kleiner Perkins. Um, so that's very interesting. The CEO there is Michael Ng, um, and their product is an operating system for healthcare organizations to help clinicians complete the substantial administrative work required of them. So that's really interesting because we, we keep seeing in the world of, of generative AI, people saying that the a lot of the um, the uh, the early successes will be in administrative and billing um, to take that to, to do the work for the clinician, set it all up, read the EMR automatically uh, and do the administrative and billing work um, for them uh, and take that burden off of the clinician. Um, and here here's a company directly pursuing that getting funding. Um, so they're focused initially on cardiology, oncology, pediatrics, and ear, nose, and throat. Um, they have initial customers of California providers like UCSF, Memorial Hermann Health System, John Muir Health. Um, I don't know the, na the name of, I wasn't able to find out the name of the partner at Kleiner who was behind the deal. And apparently Kleiner and OpenAI have been jointly making a bunch of investments, not just in healthcare, uh, together in AI. So very interesting. This was the only digital health funding announcement I found in the last week. So that represents that we're still at a nadir. We're at a, at a, at a low point in the announcing of new deals of funding. And I would say this probably represents a quality deal. So there's a flight to quality and, a, and we're still in a low funding environment. And the companies that are getting funding are often AI companies getting funding, or there are certain favored sectors that are getting the funding. And this is and this falls classically into that AI is getting the funding and has been for for a year now. Um, so, Mike, any thoughts about um, uh, about the story? Any larger significance of Ambience Healthcare raising seventy million? Well, I, I I think you're spot on in terms of you know kind of the the why around this and the, and the what's in it. Um, for folks, um, the 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 sectors that are popular, and, and you know, as we get into the conversation the, the, around aggregators, the sectors that are popular with self-insured employers, commercial health plans, large populations, um, to engage uh, and to ultimately drive um, cost trend uh, management. Um, and that are really driving the workforce, driving presenteeism, driving cost reduction, um, setting organizations apart. Any of those sectors are, are, are very popular, uh, uh, as well as anyone that's um, in the midst of, of the supply chain. So um, 
you know, I, I've seen a few more announcements. Nothing is of significance is coming to mind because I agree with you. This one is a big one at Ambiance and a big one with the, uh, the the funding contingent as well. For me, what's what I've been kind of monitoring is really the the macro healthcare environment in the states, and we've been hearing a lot um, come the turn of the year. We've seen the Medicare physician fee schedule come out. We've seen um, uh, new regulations and expectations from CMS around. Medicare Advantage plan pricing in 2025. We've seen the Medicaid redetermination process play itself out. And eventually what that's meaning is really large populations of people moving from one benefit and one payer and one um, kind of coverage determination to another. So there've been really big migrations back and back and forth. And, and while Medicare Advantage, for instance, had been um, well known as being a, a high profit, high margin, a very attractive place for our, our large uh, payer organizations and also a, um, an area that digital health um, entrepreneurs were targeting that the Medicare population where extra benefits can in fact be given uh, to Medicare beneficiaries. Now all of a sudden there's a real concern around margins. So there's some things to watch out for there. And then the Medicaid population driving right back into commercial plans. Um, and that's really important too. And then the final thing, Steve, that I would say um, that really should be on the watch list for um, really your audience and, and the broader digital health audience as well, um, really coming out of last year, but really the news is forthcoming in the next month or so. And that's the, the health technology assessment for digital health solutions and the um, founding and launch of the Peterson Health Technology Institute out in New York. Um, that organization uh, your audience may know, but uh, the audience will want to continue to follow um, the assessments that this organization, and we could call it the, the de facto HTA for Digital Health Solutions in America, uh, but they've initiated their first two assessments and they're in the biggest, most prominent, um, highest revenue generating categories in digital health today, meaning digital diabetes and digital MSK solutions. And those assessments, I uh, just heard the other day, we thought they would be out by January. They, of course, weren't, um, but it was just uh, stated that they will be out and we will all see them for the first time um, in March. So that's something to watch very closely. That's great. Thanks. And I'm going to, for our audience, I'm going to put your map again in the chat in case people, because we're about to get to the, to the map section soon. But this is Mike's map that we'll talk about in the second half of the show. Um, so next, I'm going to move on to upcoming conferences. So the idea here is uh, looking forward the next few months, what conferences should our audience know about so that the, the, the typical person in our audience is a leader at a young software company in healthcare. Um, but we also have people at, at, the, at, the, at the big incumbents as well. We have investors uh, as well. But for that um, leader at a young healthcare software company, what conferences should be on their radar? Should they go a mini review? Is it worth going? Um, if it's an important conference, is it still worth going to it? And what to get out of it? So I'll start with the Vive conference is coming up. So the Vive is February 25th to 28th in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm going to it. I welcome people in our audience who are going it. You can reach out uh, and we can meet up uh, at, at Vive. Um, and uh, Vive was created by the health conference people, Jonathan Weiner and, and team there. And they created Vive as a HIMSS killer. So, so uh, HIMSS is fundamentally 
and Hymns is, is following, I think, in, in March and Vibe is in February. So the goal of putting Vibe in February was to have everybody go and spend their budgets on Vibe and then have no budget left over to go to Hymns as well. Um, and uh, tickets are $2,600 to go to Vive in LA. Um, and it is focused on software innovation in healthcare for the payers and providers. So if you're a vendor who sells into payers and providers, this is the conference that was meant for you. And in general, Vive does a very good job of getting investors to go. So you should be reaching out to investors and saying, let's meet at Vive. And, you can, and they'll want to meet. They're, they're in meeting mode at Vive. Um, uh, and uh, the but then Vive is weak on having incumbents there. Um, so uh, you may it may be challenging to get uh, they'll have some there, but it may be challenging to, to meet the right people from a from a payer or a provider. They'll definitely have some there, um, but uh, uh, but they're a little challenged on getting uh, the big payers and providers to come. It's a very young conference um, uh, and. Uh, uh, so that's, uh, and I, I would go, I would consider if I was a software vendor, getting a booth, staffing a booth. Uh, I would also do meetings with investors. You don't need a booth to get meetings with investors. Um, it'd be great for in market intelligence. Their programming is very good. Uh, the other booths, I'm sure they'll have a lot of booths of other vendors, your competitors there. Um, so that's how I think about Vive. Um, then Hims is coming up. Hims. um, Hims is a giant conference that is a trade show, and I, I would call Vive an investor conference. But Hims is a trade show, um, and it's been around a very long time. It's focused around the hospital CIO, and over time they've added the hospital CFO for things like revenue cycle management, and also a little bit of payer attention there. So it's literally payers and providers, just like Vive is. Um, it's it's big. It's it's um, uh, it's expensive to be a uh, get get floor space uh, at Hims. And Hims is, is pretty good, uh, and I, I would go to one or the other. I'm not going to go to Hims this year. I've been to Hims many times, um, uh, but uh, Hims, um, uh, you used to be able to literally meet hospital CIOs at Hims, and they would walk the floor. And what's happened over time is that uh, hospital CIOs are, are over-prospected, uh, and they uh, they they tend to either not go or they tend to um, kind of rent their own meeting space and, and not walk the floor and just do meetings that they prearranged in their own meeting space. Um, and so HIMSS has been somewhat disappointing for vendors to go and try to sell to the hospital CIO. In addition, hospital CIOs feel beaten up and poor today in terms of their budget. And so they're not they're not aggressively trying to spend money to accomplish goals through technology right now. Um, uh, and then, uh, so let me pause at those two. Uh, you know, Mike, any, any thoughts on, uh, oh, and Hims tickets are $1,300. I'm not going this year, I'm going to Vive instead. So, uh, any thoughts on those conferences? Uh, they're, they're excellent conferences and, and you're right in terms of how to think about, um, you know, the utility and the value, right? What's the ROI on attending them? They're both huge and Hims extra huge uh, for sure. Um, I am not going to attend either. I don't believe I may stop by uh, Vive, but a couple that I'm I'm tracking, Steve, that might be of interest to your audience. Um, uh, Green Gray out of London does DTX conferences, digital therapeutic conferences. Digital Therapeutics West um, is just before Vive, actually. Uh, happens to be in LA too, so um, I know of a, a bunch of folks that will be migrating from the DTX West conference which is February 21st to the 23rd um, at the Hollywood W Hotel. 
um, two grand uh, for the tickets. Um, it's a small group, so it's it's intimate and does allow for really good networking and and learning basically from uh, listening to the presentations and the panels and from collegial conversations uh, to learn from peers. Uh, but it's not um, a, a VC attraction itself, and it's not a customer attraction. So it's it's much more of uh, colleagues and really learning in a smaller, intimate environment. Um, the other one, though, that's much bigger and perhaps more relevant, particularly as it relates to monetizing digital health, and that's the, the National Business Group on Health's annual conference, um, a little ways away, but not too early to be planning um, if you're a founder or part of the, in, digital, the innovation economy. Um, you need, to, you need to, to get an ROI, you got to plan way in advance for these conferences, in my experience. So um, two months from now, April 9th to the 12th at the JW Marriott in Tucson is uh, MBGH's um, annual conference. Um, uh, folks, uh, your audience might know that the National Business Group on Health, it's really representing U.S. large employers, for the most part, self-insured employers. Um, that's primarily the membership, but of course, all those vending into that uh, self-insured employer organization also are interested parties, members of the Business Group on Health. Non-members also can attend, so it's not a membership-only driven event. Um, if you're a member, it's a grand to 1.3. If you're a non-member, um, actually the date is coming up soon for uh, special pricing, just below two grand. Uh, but it could be again $2,000 a ticket, um, and that's a very large conference. And uh, heads of benefits, uh, chief benefits officers, the VP of of employee benefits of of very very large employers will be presenting and will be there. Uh, interacting, big display floor, and that large, uh, many of the uh, the navigation, the the digital health aggregators, as well as the um, digital health solutions uh, providers, are sponsors, and will have very, very large presence um, at this at this uh, at this conference. So, for competitive intelligence, for business development, um, for early monetization, and for learning, really good important important conference. If uh, employer market is a is a go-to-market motion for it yeah i i would uh endorse that uh so um you know companies like an accolade or lavongo they sell to the benefit leader at the progressive large employer and it's hard to get access to those people but you can get access to them at the national business group on health annual conference um, and uh, so I mentioned that there's a problem with HIMSS, which is that it's a conference about the hospital CIO, but it's very hard to actually see or meet a hospital CIO at HIMSS. Um, but that's not true at the National Business Group on Health Conference. You will meet the, 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 the head of benefits, people from the benefits office. Um, they're, they're going, they're learning, they're improving their career by attending this event. They're learning about the vendors who are there. Um, if you sit down at the group breakfast, group lunch, group dinner, um, you'll be at a table where most people there are benefit leaders uh, and you can talk with them and find out what's going on with them. And there's a lot of changes since the beginning of COVID with benefit leaders and what they want from products. Uh, and so you can, you can, you know, develop a relationship um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and treat this person as a source who's, who's got their, you know, their sort of fingers on the, uh, on the road and tell you what's really going on. So I, I, I recommend it for people who are selling into the employer health tech market. Um, well, great. So uh, let's see. Now we go to personal notices. So this is where we talk about just chances to, to see us if we're appearing on a podcast or something like that or whatever. So I'll do a, a call out, which is that 
my next drinks night party is coming up in Boston, February 15th um, uh, at the Millennium Tower in Boston. We have a speaker, Ian Chang, who's a partner at Flare Capital, which is leading Boston uh, Digital Health Venture Fund. And he's speaking about new investment themes in digital health for 2024 at that event next week. Um, and uh, so that's, uh, that's one event. And you can find that event and the other events that I'm producing at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. That's got all my shows and all my parties and events uh, on that. So then I'll also be hosting, I'll be in New York on Tuesday, March 26th, and I'm hosting a drinks night there while I'm in New York. Uh, so you, you can also find that at the same website, stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Would love to see audience members who are in New York and come to that. I'm still working on the, the guest of honor speaker for that. Um, uh, and uh, then also, um, uh, I'm helping Mihai, the Massachusetts eHealth Institute has just initiated a new challenge having to do with dementia. So I'm helping them get out the word, the application of young companies with products in dementia to apply to them is March 8th. Um, so, uh, but they are going to be, uh, they have a challenge to pick a winner and for the winner, they will support that company and their product for working with dementia with a Medicaid provider in Massachusetts. Um, so to find out more about this, check out the Mass Massachusetts eHealth Institute, also massdigitalhealth.org and search for their Medicaid challenge, which is new and get your application in by March 8th. Uh, and finally, um, uh, I'm speaking uh, on uh, winning strategies for innovators in the current environment at the PM360 Spark Conference coming up in New York in March. So that's March, Monday, March 25th. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so uh, if, you're, if you're in innovation selling into the pharma commercial budget, this is a great conference to go to. Uh, and uh, there, I have a discount code for my audience. Uh, so it's, it's yeah, INNOV4VCW. So INNOV4VCW for a 10% discount on registration there. That's PM360's Spark uh, Innovation Summit 2024. So that, those are my personal notices. Um, uh, Mike, do you have any personal notices for our audience? Uh, really quickly, um, I'll see you at Drinks Night in Boston uh, next week. So I look forward to that, Steve. They're always um, well attended and uh, of great value, uh, great insight sharing. Um, I'll probably scoot out to that DTX uh, West meeting um, uh, at the end of the month. I have some business overseas with some clients in, in Germany and actually have a uh, on a personal note, I have a daughter studying in Barcelona, so I'm excited to uh, to get overseas to stop by and uh, buy her dinner too. And doing a few master classes uh, with the Health XL community, um, if your audience is aware of Health XL. Uh, so I have a couple of master classes coming up, including uh, one on March 12th, um, commercialization models for prescription digital therapeutics. Um, that's that's great. And someone in our audience has just recommended um, Becker's annual, I think that's a hospital meet, yeah, Becker's hospital review annual meeting. Um, and uh, it looks like, yeah, that, that's coming up April 8th to 11th uh, in Chicago. Um, so yes, that, that's another one uh, that's worth, worth checking out. Uh, I think uh, similar to, to, to Vive and Hymns. Uh, so, and thanks, um, 
Thanks, uh, Scott, for, for calling that out in the comments. Okay, great. So now we are moving on to the second half of the show. The second half of the show is about the emergence of solution aggregators. So I heard about this sort of formulation of a concept, definition of a concept, and a map to go along with it through you, um, uh, Mike, and through your LinkedIn post from a year ago when you sort of put this piece out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe you could tell us, and so I, I put the link out to our audience, you can see this, but you're calling companies like CDS, Evernorth, Walgreens, Quantum, Collective, Solera, Castlight, ShareCare, um, uh, et cetera. You're calling them solution aggregators uh, in digital therapeutics. Uh, and so uh, can you tell us sort of like a, a Marvel superhero, what, what is the origin story of this map? Uh, and uh, why, how'd you put it out there? Did you expect it to get as much attention as it did? Um, you know, why were you following this so closely? What made you, uh, you know, make this, this map? <laughs> That's great. Such a great question. Uh, and thanks for asking because it started in 2019. Uh, it really started on, uh, five years ago, uh, as I began, uh, my journey at Pair, um, and because prescription digital therapeutics were completely unknown, and because at the time um, uh, we had the first two in the world, um, there weren't German DIGAs even at that time. So the first two prescription digital therapeutics in the world uh, were in the hands of a Boston-based startup, well-funded, um, and ultimately and I and my team's hands to figure out how it was that we could commercialize, monetize, and, and our direct aim was to enable payer coverage so that physicians could prescribe and ultimately, uh, like a drug, um, could be paid. So because it had never been done before, that means all options are on the table. Um, and it just so happened that exactly at that time, in May of 2019, um, CVS Health announced its uh, endeavor. Uh, the name has changed and become Point Solutions Management. But CVS Health announced this new program, um, whereby they, and really it was brought, the opportunity was brought to them by Big Health, um, makers of uh, digital therapeutics, Daylight Sleepio in the insomnia space. They actually purchased a, uh, another digital therapeutics company recently uh, as well. But it was ultimately this UK-based organization that said to themselves, how can I enter America and utilize the current distribution infrastructure um, to have our digital app be paid for, adjudicated in kind of generally normal ways um, for working class Americans, um, essentially employers. And that was their theory. And that's what ultimately um, began at least CVS's journey um, with digital therapeutics. But it was only months after that, that Express Scripts at the time, um, prior to, to Cigna and before the now evolution of the healthcare services division of Cigna becoming the brand name Evernorth, but it was Express Scripts at the time, uh, another large PBM in America that developed what they called, and it continues to be called, the digital health formula. So these things happen like all at the same time and left many of us thinking, oh, is this the panacea? Is this how digital therapeutics, or even in our case, prescription digital therapeutics, um, is this the supply chain? 
um, is this the future? Is this kind of where we should go? So it all started there. Um, and by the way, it very quickly became apparent to us as a PDT manufacturer that these modes uh, of market entry distribution and commercialization were dead end streets um, for FDA authorized prescription digital therapeutics manufacturers because a prescription was involved by a provider, by a healthcare provider, by a physician, a licensed provider. And that was not really um, the genesis, the, the theory behind or, uh, these um, methods at all. I had no idea at the time, five years ago, um, I wasn't tracking accolade. I wasn't tracking Included Health or Quantum. I wasn't tracking any of those organizations, Solera Health, Vera Whole Health, Casplight, none of them. I was not in that business. Um, so it really started out of these pharmacy benefit managers that said, hey, we have to provide services to our self-insured employer clients. And these new modalities that can impact health, healthcare costs, et cetera, patient outcomes, um, we should probably think about embracing them. So it really started there. Um, and, and then it spiraled and kind of spiraled out of control because I became more and more curious about supply chains and distribution models for digital health solutions and technologies over all of that time. I had a very difficult time. I was very curious, wanted to keep track of it, and I'm a visual learner. So this market map all developed about um, my own curiosity and my own learning need to turn it into something visual that I could make sense of uh, for myself, for my work, for my clients and to learning need to turn it into something visual that I could make sense of uh, for myself, for my work, for my clients, and to understand a mosaic and a, a potential set of go-to-market motions that could be um, valuable for digital health developers and innovators um, and ultimately value for patients. That, uh, that, that That's really interesting. Um, and so I'll just, I'll just mention, you know, um, so employers want to buy benefits for employees and they would like to see a financial return. It, it's not so important to them that it be FDA cleared. They don't necessarily need or, or even prescribed by a doctor. Someone gets the longo for diabetes and not only is it not prescribed by a doctor and it's not FDA cleared, except maybe the blood glucose monitor, which is made by Omron or somebody is, was FDA cleared years ago. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so, but they want to see that return. It's often defined as like uh, uh, 1.6x per year over two years return or something like that. You, you got to beat that hurdle um, for it to be worth buying for the for the employer. Um, and then there's there's almost a so employers are doing this for two main reasons. One is they call it bending the cost, the me, bending medical trend. So they have this expenses, and there's a story about how. Uh, diabetics will not show up in the emergency room and will manage their care better and won't progress to the more serious stages of, of the disease if they're managing their their their, di their diabetes condition better using Livongo. And that's where the financial return comes from. Um, there's that story in there. Uh, and that's that's bending medical trend down. Um, and that matters a lot. And the other reason is attracting and retaining talent and boosting morale. And so you might have a fitness program, for example. Um, the, the employer is saying, we are this kind of company. 
we're the kind of company that has a fitness program. We're fit. Uh, and we, 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 we do walking meetings uh, and we sales competes with marketing in a competition for step count every month or whatever. Um, and so those are some of the reasons they buy. But in a certain way, they actually want to bypass the medical system. In other words, that, that Livongo uh, blood glucose data, that's not going to the doctor. That's not being reviewed by the patient with their doctor, you know, once a quarter when they visit their doctor or whatever. And so in a sense, the employers are, are dissatisfied with the standard, with the plain old U.S. healthcare system. And they want to provide a, a, a tool that gives a direct financial benefit and that keeps the patient out of the doctor's office uh, because they're not, they're not satisfied with what happens when the patient goes into the doctor's office. Um, but so are some of these are those kinds of companies. So ShareCare is sells to the employer benefit leader, Quantum sells to the employer benefit leader, Collective, Castlight, Accolade, Solera. But some of them are not. Some of them are PBMs like CVS and Walgreens. Um, and so what, how would you divide? The, are there categories where they have different kinds of products or, or um, how, how would you divide these sort of the, the different kinds of aggregators? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I, and I haven't uh, yet, which will that'll be the next version coming up will probably be my own take on archetyping um, each of the groups. So you can tell I haven't done that yet. Um, but I think there is some natural kind of selection, um, and 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 one is 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 kind of pharmacy and or health plan based. So um, UHC's hub, for instance, which just came into being. Um, last year, so four years after, you know, Cigna and Aetna via their CBS and Express Scripts, pharmacy-led activities joins the party and very quickly aggregates 22 digital health solutions in a short period of time, four or five months. Amazing, like United Health Group and United Healthcare pulling that together um, for their uh, client base. It's amazing. Uh, it took a long, took a long time. So I would categorize them, kind of the CVS, Evernorth, Navitus, UHC, as the, the payer pharmacy-led uh, kind of aggregators. Um, on the other hand, then there's kind of the, the navigation or, or engagement and advocacy group. And you might say that's maybe the accolades and the, and the quantums and the includeds or castlights, et cetera, although castlight pretty strongly into, uh, into, into whole health and primary care. But then again, so is Accolade, um, having purchased uh, Plush Care and very much embedding primary care into the work that they do. But I'd say that's a subsegment. Again, everyone has a nuance and everyone is further along in their journey. We're talking about organizations in like, you know, Quantum or Collective that were founded in, you know, in, in, two decades ago in 99, right? Versus like, take a Solera, for instance, or a Rightway founded in 2017. Um, so we're talking about decades of difference in the evolution of these aggregators, all starting from different places, right, at different times. Um, I listened to an interview with uh, Accolade just reported their earnings had a nice earnings season. They're on their way and they expect to become a billion dollar company, but they're, they're going to do close to a half a billion dollars in revenue this year and, and become actually profitable. How great is that for a publicly held digital health company to actually achieve profitability. It seems like they're on their way, but they started as a longitudinal navigation provider, but they've extended into um, advocacy and virtual primary care. Um, and they're, so they're you know, very mature in that regard. So I'd say those are, those are really the two primary, I think, um, bifurcations. There's subtleties around that. I think what's quite interesting 
is some others that are starting to enter the market for different reasons in different ways. And the one that I would point to first and foremost is Amazon Health, um, who just announced this year the, the development of its health condition management program that Amada came in. And, you know, as we, uh, your audience may know, but, you, you know, Steve, we know that one of the biggest issues um, is engagement. It's really enrollment and engagement. So on the one hand, geez, there's, I don't know, stats say there's about 35,000 self-insured employers in America, but, you know, only you know, less than 10,000, you know, maybe 25% of the market is penetrated by anyone in this space in any way. So that's a very, very large untapped market. But even when you have the contract, right, the revenue generation and profitability potential is entirely gated by enrollment and appropriate enrollment and activation. And that's one of the biggest issues, which is one of the driving forces behind you know, employees don't know the benefits that they have. They just, they, they, do, they don't know. Um, and that's one of the opportunities that Omada sees with Amazon is, is awareness, is making the general consumer, the employee actually aware of their benefits and therefore driving the funnel of enrollment and activation, engagement and outcomes um, much more efficiently. So I'd watch that. So a little bit of history from 1999, like when Amazon was founded almost, was when Quantum and Collective were founded. Kind of wild to think that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I have a bunch of questions about the map, but uh, you know, do you want to kind of walk through it uh, a little bit? We talked about how some of these are, uh, you know, um, uh, benefit vendors that sell benefits to the uh, benefit leader at the progressive large employer. Some are, are um, uh, PBMs uh, associated with health plans. Uh, but are there any other things you want? Like I, I noticed, you know, you, you managed to include Amazon Health. That's a brand new announcement. So kudos to you for noticing that, putting it on your map um, and their partnership with Omada. Um, but any other, do you want to walk us through any, anything that you drew from making this map? Yeah, again, I think um, what I wasn't trying to do was to be overly scientific, uh, as mentioned uh, with your, you, know, you alluded to with the archetype question. I wanted to be as inclusive on the publicly available information as possible. Um, and so I've monitored it very carefully. But if looking at any one of the boxes, um, one, a few of the things that will be noticeable in any one of the boxes is that these all are not digital health solutions. So I think that the, the really um, enterprises that are providing some sort of benefit that an employee might value. And so I th think that's maybe the first um, observation, which is there could be really financial planning or it could be um, adoption services, or it could be caregiver at, uh, support, or it could be, in some cases, there's even um, pet insurance, right? So this is really about employee benefits. Um, and, and what I didn't want to do was just only pick the digital health solutions, because we're thinking about employee benefits. And to your point, Steve, we're talking about employee engagement, presenteeism, ab absenteeism, differentiating, making your employer, your employer stand out as being you know, best of breed, you know, the place to be, et cetera. So um, that's one of the first things was we won't just see, and I did not only select from the publicly available benefits information. 
um, just digital health or just healthcare specific solutions. Um, another thing that that you know we'll point out um, here is that each one of these organizations has their own kind of nomenclature, uh, their own kind of thinking, and therefore behind it, their own type of way of working with uh, digital health developers and or any other type of benefits provider. Um, so the names I also find quite interesting, whether or not they're called uh, marketplaces or partners or part of a network or a trusted partner or it's an ecosystem or one is premier versus one is preferred versus one is integrated. So the organizations might have degrees of relationship with their digital health partners. Um, and I think those nuances are important. Wait, uh, we don't have time to go through all of those nuances, but they're meaningful um, in, in many circumstances uh, as well. So those are two of the big takeaways. And then, I mean, another one of the takeaways, just looking at the map, um, and this is the thing that su surprised me the most out of kind of nurturing my own curiosity, trying to make sense of this for real practical business purposes, is I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten from chief commercial officers, chief growth officers of all the digital health companies who, A, either want to correct something, give me news upcoming, but most importantly, the thing that like is so amazing is hearing these folks, the heads of sales, utilize this market map as a sales incentive, as a motivational tool amongst the sales force, saying, I want us to have as many logos as XYZ company, or we only have 10% penetration across this entire mosaic of possible downstream distributors. So it's interesting how um, very quickly you can latch on to a picture that seems to uh, uh, look as though some organizations might be insiders and some might be outsiders or some not participating at all. Look as though some organizations might be insiders and some might be outsiders or some not participating at all. And it begs a lot of strategic and a lot of uh, competitive questions amongst all. And it begs a lot of strategic and a lot of uh, competitive questions amongst the organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's really great. Now, when, when I look at this, when I first saw this without really understanding what it was, I thought that these are the products of the aggregators, the products that they built themselves. But no, that's not true. And then the next thing I thought was, well, this is a consolidation map. This is who they bought. Um, but that's not true. Um, and it's actually who they sell. But no, that's not true. And then the next thing I thought was, well, this is a consolidation map. This is who they bought. Um, but that's not true. Um, and it's actually who they partnered with. So you have all these uh, sort of aggregator companies that are partnered with. So you have all these uh, sort of aggregator companies that are partnering with many solution companies. Um, and I wonder why that historically played out the way it did. Um, why are they choosing to partner instead of uh, to build it themselves or to buy it in the marketplace? Um, and maybe that, that's to come. Maybe the consolidation is to come. Uh, uh, and so, um, but, and what does it, does it mean anything, for example? So let, let me raise something that it could mean or it might not mean. But one, one thing it might mean, I'll just pick an example here, you know, 
uh, inside of under CVS is uh, progeny is listed under CVS. So does that does that mean that um, CVS has validated progeny as being let's say cost effective? You know, uh, it works, it's effective, it's cost effective. Does it mean that CVS um, only picks one for if progeny is a fertility solution? So it, it, they only pick one fertility solution, and they have an exclusive contract with with progeny. Does it mean they're getting some economics in a sale? Does it mean that you buy it on CVS paper and CVS is reselling it? These are things it could mean. I don't know. In general, does it does it have these kinds of meanings? Or the opposite would be that. Uh, CVS is saying, we're Switzerland, we don't closely align with anyone, we'll put all the fertility solutions, if they do the work to be on our, you know, here, we'll resell all of them. Um, and we don't look particularly into whether they're cost effective for our buyers or not. Uh, so how, what do we take from the fact that a solution has is, is endorsed and part of the marketplace of one of these aggregators? Mm, super great question. Um, that you can take some superficial things away, which I'll mention, but the most important thing that I would suggest is what, what you need to take away is what it means in the context of each one of these aggregators books of business in the context of what you are trying to accomplish. Okay. Um, so none of them are created equal and none of the relationships are created equal at all. Uh, tremendous number amounts of similarities, rationales behind them to do them, um, uh, assessment processes, contract terms and conditions, expectations from the aggregator. There are lots of similarities across them, uh, but there are absolute important nuances too. If, going back to CBS, you asked the question like, you know, how did Progeny use that as an example? Of course, I don't know um, exactly uh, Progeny's story, um, but broadly, um, CBS and and I would say generally nuance, but broadly these organizations are doing a few things. One is that they're scanning the they're they're listening to the needs of their own customers. Number one, so CBS has health plans, employer groups, uh, state employee groups, uh, TPAs, unions. CBS and I'm talking about CBS Health PBM, the Pharmacy Benefit Management Arm, which is the arm of the organization that manages the Point Solutions Management Program. So they're doing two things. They're, they're uh, ascertaining client needs, um, things like what conditions are important, what things are really driving your business, what are driving your spend, what's keeping you up at night, you know, what are these things, how do we solve? And then they're doing vendor scans, right? They're, they're saying, well, what do we have in the market? And they're matching those things together. So client priorities and, and things are really driving um, really who, who is it that we would want to talk to, um, uh, et cetera. And then all of these organizations are doing um, some sort of kind of clinical review in some way type of validating that the, the health, the health care or the medical aspects of what the solution provider is bringing are, are true, are, are, are valid, have, have some sort of meaning. To, to what extent will differ. It'll differ, differs across organization, differs across any condition category, differs across any technology type, whether things are standalone technology and apps, whether they have you know, machine learning or AI included in them, whether or not we've got um, external providers of any type of any credential involved, all those things will be different. But there will be some sort of clinical review that will happen. 
A big thing that will happen for sure is a security review because employers just cannot withstand um, a privacy incursion through a vendor, through something that the HR department did that incringes upon an employee's privacy. So probably the most rigorous thing, although again, it will vary. Each one of these organizations, one might say SOC 2 is mandatory, one and one might say, oh, that's nice to have. One might say, if you don't have high trust certification, don't talk to us. Another would say, that's a nice to have. But there will be substantial security reviews, uh, particularly as it relates to HIPAA um, and third party data um, security policies, et cetera. That will occur, as well as many, many other things. In, in, in some cases, there's usability testing. In some cases, there's really, really um, uh, required kind of um, ROI preconditions and proof of type of value. Um, so across the board of every one of these, that's really the domain of assessment areas, but they're calibrated. And each one of these organizations goes about it in a more or less rigorous way for different circumstances um, based on the program and the product and kind of their own liability, their own client's expectations, their own degree of integration. That's those are the things that are really driving it. That, that's really interesting. Thanks. And um, so for our audience, by the way, this is a great time to ask questions about the market map, about the emergence of solutions, aggregators. Um, and uh, uh, John asks, uh, there are a ton of logos in this market map. Yes. Um, many of them are repeated in different baskets. How much of that will change as market consolidation continues? How many direct acquisitions by a partner can we expect from this cohort? What percent will be acquired by a partner? So let me jump in there. I kind of have a thesis. Love to get your reaction uh, to this. So um, uh, one thing. So during the boom years and we're now in bust years, but during the boom years, you had this phenomenon where consolidators, as in large incumbent companies that have the money to buy, they often have a lot of cash. They're often cash flow positive. They often have, are public and they have two currencies, cash and stock, with which to make acquisitions. And they've made acquisitions in the past. Those are consolidators. Um, they were faced with this big problem that the young challengers, um, the, the young uh, point solution companies, were valued at astronomically. They were valued at 15 times forward revenue or 20 times forward revenue, and they were earnings negative. And so they were going to, and so the, the, the consolidators might have been valued at less than 10 times forward revenue. Um, and they, they just couldn't buy them. They were too pricey. They would never be uh, accretive on an EPS basis to buy. Um, and so you saw consolidation should have happened in this sector, and it was delayed because the young companies were just priced too high. And it was easy for the young companies to raise a new large round of funding and try to become a consolidator themselves and not sell. Um, and so now that has finally come to an end. That inversion of, of sort of value has come to an end. And the young companies have taken down rounds and they no longer have easy access to a huge round of funding. And so they're, they're, they're starting to feel pressure to buy. So that's one, I'm sorry, this is feeling pressure to sell themselves to a consolidator. That's how they're going to exit and get liquidity for their investors by selling themselves to a consolidator. And for consolidators, the numbers work better now because the valuations are lower for the young private companies. Um, so that's, uh, so I, I believe that's going to happen. I believe that the Virgin Pulse Health Comp $3 billion merger that, that was announced about three months ago was the starting gun of the consolidation. Uh, and and you'll see these uh, 
what you're calling aggregators are going to be consolidators who buy some of these point solutions. Now, in general, in any category, there's several point solutions in that category. In fertility, there's over 30 in that category. And there's, there's just many of these. And so I think, unfortunately, for the innovation economy, it's going to be a buyer's market. A buyer can come in and say, we will buy the number four solution. We'll make a lowball offer to buy the number four solution in this marketplace and ignore the numbers one, two, and three. And whoever we buy, we're going to make the king because we have a great sales force. Um, and so, uh, and, uh, uh, so I think that's going to be, it's going to be a buyer's market to buy those. Now, there's also some, we, we look at these solutions aggregators. There's some big changes happening in the benefit leader's office at the progressive large employer, the Fortune 500 company that is the progressive large employer, their benefit leader. One of the first things that's happening is that they are getting a directive to cut the number of employees. So they might have had a department of 10 people for, for nationwide. Now it's going to go down to nine, something like that. Um, they have less uh, bandwidth to engage with 30 to 60 point solutions. Um, and so the next is that they're looking for enterprise buys. So this is like in the old days when the legal department wanted WordPerfect word processor and the finance department wanted Lotus one, two, three word processor. Um, and somebody wanted Goldmine for, for contacts or whatever. And then Microsoft came in and just sold the enterprise solution. The entire Microsoft office productivity suite sold for every computer seat in the whole company. And it didn't matter that legal said that the footnotes are better for legal documents in WordPerfect. They got Word. That was it. It came installed by IT on their PC. That enterprise buy is going to start happening at the Fortune 500 for health benefits. Uh, and they're, they're going to want to buy a suite. The categories have become defined. We know there's care management, wellness, telehealth, um, uh, uh, enrollment, consumer-directed benefits, um, a, a, a few other areas. Uh, and so you're going to see defined suites in, in those areas. Um, and then uh, you're going to see uh, the, the existing consolidators and aggregators are going to make some buys of products to fill in their empty suites in those areas. And then lastly, that they're, the benefit leaders are, are going to want to pay less. So that there's going to be enterprise buy um, uh, and pay less. There's also going to be a desire for what I call meta functionality. So the functionality of your diabetes product is that it lowers A1C levels by 0.9 points. That's the functionality. The meta functionality is that you guarantee the IT security, that it's part of a, of a suite of products, that there's analytics that run across every product with the same output across all of those, um, that it integrates with your people soft, soft HR software. That's meta functionality. And these benefit leaders are, are sick of having to figure that, that, that solution out themselves. And they're going to want one vendor to offer them all those, offer them the functionality they want and the meta functionality that they want. Um, so that's how I see that going. But Mike would love to get your thoughts on that question from our audience about, um, uh, you know, about will we see consolidation here? Yeah, I mean, you characterized it really well, Stephen. I know you've been following this marketplace um, even longer than I have or as long as I have. So you know it well, well characterized. I mean, some of these things have already appeared, right? Um, it's even on the chart. So as an example, um, UHC Hub, one of their 22 solutions on the map that we have is Second MD. okay? So UHC Hub chose Second MD as one of their digital health solutions providers. Um, Second MD is an accolade product. So UHC didn't necessarily pick accolade to be its navigator. 
it picked a product that was rolled up that's now part of Accolade Solution. It would be like picking a ShareCare in-house DTX product for one of the benefits offering as well. So you might be cherry picking an element of a broader platform or integrated platform or not. That's what that's one example. And I couldn't agree with you more that uh, there's no question that um, you know point point solution fatigue is real. Um, it, 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 that's like almost an old term now. So anyone that does go to the um, business group on health conference in April, I'm not even sure that term will be used or it's a kind of passe at this point because we've moved on and we're moving on to absolutely there has to be um, platform and integration in that regard. But you know what? Um, and I'm reading it in the there's a comment in the chat as well about lack of integration in in the actual healthcare system into the primary care provider. So I think what we're also seeing is this loops back because the point solution has been disconnected from the healthcare system. And I think that what we're going to see is these roll up of very valuable solutions that have just caused a lot of um, uh, overload ultimately. Uh, we're going to see that consolidation occur, but we're going to see that integration and inflection point back into the healthcare system because it's unsustainable. It, it's not practical um, to have investment in solutions that sit completely outside of the measurement continuum of kind of health outcomes and, and health status. And all employers would want to know that my employees are doing well and they're being as productive as they could be. And I can't do any more about it than I am right now. That's what the benefits leader would want to know. And the only way they're gonna know that is when digital health solutions are actually integrated into the healthcare mix. And that's another reason why, by, by the way, the benefit leader has a defined budget that their CEO gave them and the board, and that's all they have. And that's all they have to spend on everything, including traditional insurance products for healthcare benefits. So one of the other things that I think we're going to see more of is the winners in digital health solutions will be those that can actually integrate into standard healthcare benefits and claims-based payment versus a check from the HR benefits administrator, because that's a defined budget coming right off the P&L versus kind of medical expenditures that we can routinely um, you know, allocate back to the company in terms of, you know, kind of medical trend management and cost of care management as well. And uh, Livongo and Omada have been sort of pioneers in figuring out how to charge to the medical and pharmacy parts of, sure. of enterprise of, of employer spend, as opposed to the programmatic benefits budget, which is small. Uh, and I think we'll see a formula for success would be to go after a big, hard, uh, medical problem, expensive medical problem, uh, and, and then figure out how to charge, you know, medical and pharmacy spend for it and not the the, the programmatic budget uh, uh, there. So one thing I, I would mention to our, our audience is this has to do with the fact that, that, the, that the healthcare marketplace has different actors. So there's like payers, providers, patients, regulators, um, uh, et cetera, within within uh, providers, there's administrators versus uh, practicing doctors or whatever, and they have, they're at odds with each other and they don't like each other. Um, and they, they, and they do things, they do cost shifting and things in spite, in spite of each other and not in cooperation with each other. And what you have going on, the, the, um, the, the fee for service provider wants to give more care and get paid for more care. So uh, if they, 
if they address an issue and don't solve it and the patient comes back, at least in the old days, they, they would get to charge more for that. Um, uh, they, they, they make more money from a patient who neglects their teeth than they do from a patient who takes great care of their teeth. Um, uh, and But the employer is the opposite of that. The employer is the actor who um, is mo in America is most on the hook and pays the most. Um, and by the way, for our audience, this is a great time to ask any last questions in the chat. Um, but the employer it bears the most risk, pays the most, feels it, if 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 healthcare expenses go up six percent instead of five percent, they feel it very strongly. That that it hurts them a lot if that's the case. Um, uh, it goes straight to their bottom line and to their EPS and to their CEO and CFO and head of HRs and head of benefits compensation packages. Um, and so uh, you have situations like that. They're that the employer benefits are trying to keep you out of the doctor's office and where the doctors would say, come on into the doctor's office. And, and so, and then people observer says, well, shouldn't you be putting that great diabetes information from the app? Shouldn't that go to the, to the doctor? Well, actually the, the app's trying to, to keep the patient out of the doctor's office and the doctor doesn't necessarily want that information because they're not paid to, to have that information. Um, and so there's a, there's a, just a big disconnect between these two with benefits that sell to the employer acting sort of like a capitated environment and and uh, tools that sell to professionals and providers um, are sort of acting like they're in a fee-for-service environment, to totally different way. Uh, and so, um, so uh, and employers like the benefits that come to them from these benefit vendors that act like it's a, like it's a more capitated environment. And they don't like the fact that they're, that they're on the hook, that their employee leaves the office, goes to a doctor, and they get a giant bill later from that doctor, and they can't question that bill. Um, so an example of this is that, you know, an, an employee has uh, on and off back pain, and they go and talk to a specialist, uh, you know, back proceduralist. And that procedure recommends a procedure that costs seventy thousand dollars, and the and the employee gets the procedure, and the employer pays for it, and then it doesn't really help. And then it's, it's a failed procedure; doesn't help. And the employer is trying to catch that employee before they ever get to that specialist and give them a musculoskeletal program for free. So they take it and use it, and that, and then they they control their back pain and reduce their back pain themselves. And so that's just totally different. And, and they're intentionally doing it so that. The patient, never, the employee never goes to the doctor and never has a $70,000 procedure. Um, so it's two different people working totally at odds uh, with each other. And the employers like the way these benefits are served up to them. And they don't like the fact that they're in America, they're on the hook to provide health insurance uh, and have to pay what the doctors charge for this. So um, that, that's... Uh, uh, and so I, I think these will remain sort of different camps and people keep pointing out, well, shouldn't they share data? Well, they're, they're, I mean, maybe they will in certain circumstances they can, but they're, they're both not incented to share the data. Um, so uh, anyway, um, that uh, until we have single payer, I think these are going to be uh, sort of butting heads with each other. Um, mm. But uh, any, any, any last thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, we, we, uh, I, I agree in many ways and, and honestly uh, have some differences in, in, in opinion there. I, I tend to think that I think of it a little bit in the context of you know, our experience in, in, in health economics and outcomes research, right, where, where we think about health care, we want to drive good utilization and we want to have more good utilization of health care, right, and less bad utilization of health care. And when digital health budgets sit in the HR budget, right, but medical costs sit in the right sit sit in the in the mlr budget right different right one's the the opex budget versus one is you know not right we just do trend 
you know, medical costs or medical costs, right? It's not a budget. You don't tell your employees, sorry, you, you define your benefits package and that's it. I mean, if someone has to have surgery, someone has to have surgery. It was a benefit. You defined it. But the more that those things get integrated, the better, the, the, the better, right? Because the, there's got to be an incentive to drive good utilization as much as avoid bad utilization. And that's where this activation of digital health technologies, both patients that are eligible and should be actually enrolling and engaging with the digital health technology, meaning the employee benefits manager that invested in the tool, but then none of the employees use it. That's a bad outcome, right? You, you want them to be using it as much as possible, right? But that's not happening. And so the more that that can kind of come together, the better off. But I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. As soon, anytime it's separate, it's, it's not optimal. That's great. And we have one last uh, question from Liz. So do you think HR teams' roles in employee health and well-being will evolve as these solutions start to become more integrated into employer benefits? I haven't yet seen much effort to empower HR as a throughout the year resource for connecting employees to resources. Um, so I guess there I would say that there's a wonderful role for what's called navigation. And Accolade's a good example of a navigation company. And that's, that's outside of, that's a vendor that's outside of the HR office. What I actually see happening in HR is that, um, that these health benefits, we've been through a, a, an, a Cambrian explosion of different kinds of health benefits over the last, call it 15 years, selling to the employer. And some worked and some didn't. Um, and employers were delighted by some. And, and, uh, but it's now become very defined. Like what are, what are the care management benefits? So number one is diabetes. Number two is uh, pre-diabetes, uh, obesity, and other metabolic. Number three is hypertension. Number four is musculoskeletal. Number five is cancer symptom management. And, and about five is about, and there's a few other categories after that. Uh, uh, autoimmune is another category in there. And um, so, and it's a very defined marketplace. And so what we're going to see is things are going to become standardized uh, with, with multiple companies offering similar suites. And uh, so this is like uh, a startup today choosing between the Microsoft Office Productivity Suite versus the Google Productivity Suite versus the Zoho Productivity Suite. And they, they, they had similar offerings um, and at different price points um, meant for different sized companies, that sort of thing. Uh, and, um, uh, and it'll become much more automated um, and it will become, it'll be integrated into um, HR management software like PeopleSoft um, and ERP software, um, uh, uh, and uh, and the and the because it, and it'll be more automated. And because it's more automated, the role of HR is going to diminish um, in this. There'll be fewer HR employees focused on this, and they will do exception management. You know, it will pop up that. Um, that, that, you know, there's a goal of reducing back procedures and that they're not hitting that goal. And so it's time for HR to step in and do something about that and reduce the back procedures or whatever. But it, it but I think so it, it'll become more standardized, more automated, better understood, and uh, the software will automate it. But there will still need to be some magic on the part of Accolade to get engagement with their product and to do navigation correctly and evolve that correctly. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's my rough take on that. And Mike, any, any thoughts on that, on that question about HR? Yeah, my last word there is uh, the HR team needs to really focus on the workplace for the employees now and, and feel as though the employee is doing as well as they can be. And the HR 
you know, leader is doing as well as they can do as an employer to help the employee be the best that they can be. So for me, it's all about, um, yes, we want the HR department confident that their employees know that they can engage with a benefit, that they should engage with a benefit, and how they should engage with a benefit. And the opportunity there is for HR to find that trusted partner, whether it's Accolade or Transparent or some other navigator, but those that have the data, the capability, the trust, and the resources to catch that employee, the employee's got awareness, and they catch them at the right time to begin a really strongly engaged relationship with this benefit that they have available to them, and their employer would want them to take advantage of. And HR shouldn't have to play a role in that. HR has to give them the benefits and give them the best capability to engage in that benefit at the right time for the right reasons. Well, that's great. So that, that's about all we have time for. Uh, so, uh, Mike, any final thoughts on, you know, how this this market, these these several marketplaces and where they're going? And then also, um, how can people reach you? Yeah, my final comments are for, for any uh, entrepreneur, anyone in the innovation economy uh, whose research and go-to-market would say the self-insured employer or the employer marketplace is somewhere that uh, you should be looking to monetize. Um, uh, you must have a look at these channels and must ascertain whether or not um, they're right for you uh, in the way you see it. Um, so that's my last word. Um, how you can contact me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Steve, you've got the, uh, the link there. Uh, please DM me directly. I'm usually pretty responsive there. And um, if we can be ever be of help um, in, uh, in your journeys, um, pre-commercial or commercial, um, yeah, I'm just a, a, a DM away and I live in Boston and eager to, uh, to help out in any way we can. That's great. Well, well, thank you. Um, uh, so you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk. Uh, I'm your host, Steve Wardell. Many thanks to our guest, Michael Pace. Our next show is Wednesday, February 28th, and the topic is Healthcare's Titanic Crisis Looms. Healthcare is full of problems like limited supply and principal Asian problems and regulatory capture, but tech is now set to transform this with our guest, Will Manitas. Um, for our Boston office, uh, for our Boston audience, I hope uh, you'll come to our drinks night on Thursday, February 15th. Um, you can find a list of upcoming shows and parties and, and leadership summits at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, thanks very much and, and see you soon. And thank, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Steve. See you soon.